Hello and welcome to StratHack Season 2, a podcast series that aims to dig deep into the art of marketing strategy and decision-making. Hosted by me, Sarah Holland, Deputy CEO of Ketchum, and me, Amelia Tarode, founder of Formbreak. In each episode, we lift the lid on a company or individual who inspires us, talking with them about the decisions they've made and the strategic process they've gone through to achieve success. Then stay with us as we discuss what we've learned, identifying and highlighting the key brand lessons and marketing learnings which we believe will be applicable to businesses anywhere, before asking ourselves and you the really tough question. So what are we now going to do differently? We're joined on today's episode of Hack by Salim Chowdhury, the Managing Director of Techstars UK, one of the best known and successful technology accelerators in the world. Salim calls himself an unusually passionate and enthusiastic grown-up and a safe pair of hands. A former technical founder turned early-stage venture capitalist, obsessed with identifying indicators of founder and startup success, something that we share in common. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. So, best place to start, let's get back to basics a little bit. <gasps> oh, dear. What, what are <laughs> What are accelerators? And I think, crucially... Both why do they matter now and how are they showing up now? Post-COVID, post-Brexit, have they mattered more than ever? Are they taking a different shape? What's your take? So Accelerators have been around for a long time. And I think the key things that have changed is, one is the social acceptance of entrepreneurship. (laughs) It's a totally valid life choice. Uh, I remember... When, you know, I was back in the day when I was a management consultant, it's like, are you sure you want to do that startup thing? I mean, you, you, you know, you, you, there are plenty more sensible things you could be doing. Mm. And that's completely changed the other way around. Those consultancies, basically, I'm flooded with applications from their staff desperately trying to leave. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, the, the, the reality is in the early days, accelerators are really, really important as social validators and also of people, you know, doing this because we ended up being this niche community of people doing strange stuff. And um, over time, while it's become more socially acceptable, it's been socially acceptable, but nobody actually understands what entrepreneurship actually is Mm. or entails. And unless you happen to be blessed by coming from a family where you've been able to see entrepreneurs in action, you've been connected to them, you have, there are a load of business leaders in your personal financial social group, which Access. lets me quite frank. Exactly. Um, and I think that's what's really interesting about why Accelerator is so relevant today. It's moved on from the time of being when the Accelerator was the only way to, you know, was a way of, you know, because it was such a niche thing to do. It's a very common thing to do now. But to do it well and success, you need a community, you need a family. And unfortunately, not all of us happen to be born with it, with the right connections, with the right things. And that to me is where the place of accelerators really, really are. You know what? If you come from a family with money and you're bright and you're well connected and your parents or you yourself have seen lots of founders in action, then great. You really don't need an accelerator nine out of 10 times. Or of course, there's Y Combinator. Um, but, uh, <laughs> which we'll no doubt get into in a second. And it's, and cause this comes down to what accelerator really is. And we'll come down, come down to that later on, uh, later on, no doubt. But for me, it's really all about making sure that those people that don't have those networks and access, they get access to experienced people 
who've been there, done that. They help de-risk it by showing them this is how you don't screw up. And also, more importantly, networks of capital. The reality of it all is, certainly entrepreneurship all around the world, it's not like America or the UK or anything like, you know, or wherever you are in the world. Um, access to capital is often very, very restricted to those with very close personal tie networks. So as a result, an accelerator, we do three things. One is we de-risk the investment and the, and the time spent. When I say investment, it's not about cash. It's about people's lives. Time is our most valuable asset. Mm. And if you're going to spend your time doing a startup, you want to make sure it's got every chance of success. Or if it isn't, you want it to fail fast and get on with your life and take a, dare I say it, proper job. Not that I really know what that is. Um, <laughs> the second thing that accelerators really do in this day and age that I'm really is that they act as that social leveler. They mm. act, particularly if you've got someone like me running it, you know, yeah. let's be quite frank and honest. Uh, you know, my parents are lovely, but certainly, you know, I'm very grateful for the upbringing I had, but it certainly <laughs> lacked any element of silver spoon mm. uh, in any way, shape or form. Uh, we had everything we needed, but like, Christ, you know, and I worked my way up to, to get to where I am today. So it's access that social leveler. And lastly, that third piece is community building. It gives you a community. Certainly Textiles London, we've got one of the largest alumni groups. My office is filled with founders from multiple batches, and we are a giant loving community that helps and uplifts. Yeah. Those are social advantages, and that's why accelerators matter the, today, um, because they're great for leveling the world up, basically, not what Boris Johnson calls it. <laughs> yeah, uh, principle, not policy. So I was thinking Correct. leveling up. Um, do you think that that's why they're kind of, just going back to your point about capital and the community piece, do you think that is what makes them the most accessible part of the ecosystem versus you know, what is a venture capitalist? If no, if you've never heard the people say the word VC or angel investor, it's slightly kind of abstract and feels like that other world that you just talked about. Do you think that part of the power and why people can kind of access through accelerators is because of that kind of community, because it feels more familiar, because it's group-based? Um, I think that certainly helps. But I think one of the things I, I would say is we try to be, I help more people understand this whole weird language world of, you know, most people think Dragon's Den is reality. Uh, and I got to have a great privilege of meeting Tuka Suleiman uh, a couple of weeks ago. And he's genuinely one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. But he's interested in, you know, what I would call smaller, more sustained cash generative businesses yeah. rather than VC-backed businesses, which fundamentally at their core are trying to be really, really, really big or nothing. And so, and it's helping conflict that. But I would say still, as an industry, traditional VC funds do a terrible bloody job of this. And many accelerators, we have a lot more to go to being helping people understand what we can do for them and how we can actually open this up to, to where the talent shines, not just having to have that body of knowledge, as you mentioned. I'm deeply upset. Like, I lost a founder for this batch. Brilliant founder. Really, really great hustler. But the problem is he'd moved over uh, from an African country a few years back. And for him, this whole VC world is very, very intimidating. Mm. And it really annoys the hell out of me that this is sadly the reputation that we have and we're, we're so exclusive. And I think I'm part of the problem and I need to start getting better at that. Uh, and I know many of my colleagues are part of the problem and they enjoy being part of that problem like that, being all elite and exclusive only me and I'm that thing. So anyway, we have a long way to go. 
So, so I mean, that's interesting. So you, you're new in to textiles. Did you start in January of this year or a little bit later? I started in December this year. So December. last year. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so, so uh, what, what are your, what are your plans? I mean, you know, textiles is probably the, you know, one of the brands of accelerators, you know, really well known, but maybe to your point, maybe, maybe not as well, maybe not as well known by the people who should know it, or maybe not as well understood. And I'm sort of interested in what, what you plan, what you want to do with, with, with textiles. I think we're well known, but we're not well understood. And I had the same thing at my last one, the 500 startups, which is, you know, arguably probably one of Texas's nearest rivals. Yes, I didn't stray too far when I decided to switch jobs. We are well known, but we're not really well understood. The, the, we're misunderstood as providers of capital rather than providers of social and intellectual capital. That is really what Accelerator is in this day and age. The actual financial capital we provide is not material to be quite frank and honest, any of them. Like the reality is any good accelerator that's particularly in-person and actually has teaching directly and you are part of a community that's actively present, that makes such a big difference. And we're not, you know, we don't do a very good job of communicating. Here's why they're such great vehicles for success because all of a sudden you're not alone. You have guidance from other people you're able to operate as you need to do, but you know, you are not often, you're just no longer operating alone because it always takes a village. So that's kind of accelerators generally. I guess thinking about textiles specifically, do, do you have a, a sort of sense of how you want to differentiate and, and I guess what 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 the brand is or what the narrative is, what, what's going to make textiles different and why, why should somebody come to you as opposed to anyone else? So textiles as a whole works as a global community. And we have a very strong first culture where everybody's proactive and sort of social and helping each other. And that's one of the things we look for our founders. If we look, if being clear, like I cannot see Travis Kalkanic ending up at a, um, a textiles accelerator. He does not embody the idea of somebody who wants to help others. And I think that's the, that's one of the things we do look for a certain personality type. Um, and equally, there are lots of people who will fund those aggressive personality type who are very narcissistic, me first, et cetera. So that's one of the things. Texas is meant to be, and it will be for as long as I am having a say in the UK of deciding who comes in, a community of basically very socially considerate, giving people. Second thing I want Textiles to be known for as it's the, it's, we want to be the, we are the accelerator which helps founders more than anywhere else. And I don't even care if you went through Techstars. My job is to try and help build and uplift the community. A rising tide lifts all ships. And I think this is where a lot of VCs are so obsessed with their status, their ego, and them. I'm fundamentally a public servant as far as I'm concerned. My job is to help and enable as many people become competent and be better at running early stage high growth tech ventures because that's what we're in we're not in lifestyle businesses we're not here to help people build small businesses that they can that can pay their salaries and because there's nothing wrong with that That it's a great piece of entrepreneurship that's not what we're here for but under me Texas london and Texas uk should be basically the organization that helps founders as much as more than anybody else and is looking for the talent that knows how to build and how to execute but may not be as polished, you know. I mean, like one of my favorite pieces of feedback I get is like, oh, Salim, yeah, we looked at that, 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 that founder, but, you know, I just didn't think they could sell it. I was like, mm. 
but they've built a product. They have people paying for it. They are excellent builders. And then I'm like, wait, by selling it, you mean, ah, now I see what you mean. Well, they actually are, it's a euphemism for, I don't think they sound good enough for other investors who look like me to invest in. And that really annoys me. And so what should matter is your execution and your customers loving you, not investors loving you. Because the only time, and that's also one of the secret things about the investment world, like the only time a founder has leverage against an investor is when it has more customers that love it than investors, right? So my line is this, we build founders that help have really customers that love their product to the point where the VCs can't ignore them. And we also at the same time coach them to play the same game as somebody who's been around, you know, lots of very successful pitchy type people. And we give them skills. In fact, I employ a former actress on my team Mm. exactly to help coach them and do that. And people, you know, it's like, you know, I don't think that's a weird thing to do. To me, it's really, really normal. If we have to help people just because they weren't brought up in the right way, so they don't know how to say things in the right way, let's teach them. And, and, you know, instead of using that as the lead domino and then expecting, oh, yeah, and then we can teach them how to build a company and how to be good to people and be a good managers and how to build products that people want. It's the wrong way round. Sorry. <laughs> peeve. I want to pick up on a couple of things you said there and go back to some of the, the indications of startup and founder success, right? If indeed, are they always one and the same thing is an interesting question. You talked there quite a lot about founders in terms of characteristics. Yep. Just... You've got this great quote about the knitting being more important than the quality of the wool. Yes, Just, 100%. Yeah, so like if you could expand a little bit more on kind of what you've learned and what you've seen that what are those other kind of success factors? What's the like what's the magic and the logic that kind of sits? Ah, okay. under these the magic and the logic. So one of the things I always say is the knitting is more important than the wool. Mm-hmm. And it's not just because I'm Welsh and I love sheep and all things fluffy. It's largely to do with you can have a team of really, really bright, capable, you know, they all have, you know, they're ex-Google, Amazon, whatever, and they all went to Harvard, Stanford, Oxford, wherever, and, you know, that's great. And that's re- I'm sure they're really bright people. But the problem is, is when you get too many smart people or too many of any sort of people, to be quite frank and honest, and they don't work well together, and they're always fighting and arguing with each other. I remember in one batch, you had a team of, I think it was six, ridiculously bright people almost all of them went to one of the top five universities in the uk and they spent four hours trying to decide how to test a feature whereas you know the simple answer is not to spend four or five hours having the feature it was what this other founder did who hadn't who was basically self-taught no education that he just went and told them no why don't you just put a button on the website and see if people click it and if people click that feature then people actually want it then you build it just apologize to them saying it's not working at the time. It's like, oh, and that's what I mean by knitting more important. Like the knitting that they can get to a good answer quickly, that they can make decisions quickly, and that they're able to actually process stuff actually saves time. And this comes to my earlier point. Startups are not short of money. They are short of time. And mm-hmm. so the knitting of a team means that you are able to come to decisions and ideas quicker and faster. And you're able to like, instead of trying to argue the toss about everything, you end up coming to a very constructive ways of agreeing. So you and Amelia have worked together for ages, right? If I remember correctly. The point is when you decide on something, it's not like you have to spend half an hour. No, it's muscle memory. Right, exactly. And that's what I mean by knitting. 
The reality is it doesn't matter where somebody went to school. It matters how well the team are able to communicate with each other. I mean, in fact, one of my favorite lectures from the program is if you look at some of the most high-performing companies like Amazon, like they have a set logic of how decisions are made. Yeah. And we actually like, you know, it's actually probably one of the best ways I've seen like there's lots of things wrong with Amazon, but its ability to create a culture of how decisions are made is great. And we actually have an ex-Amazon product manager, Claire, who actually teaches that on my team. And so this is the sort of thing that makes a big, big difference. So that's why the knitting piece is more important. Um, the other thing is velocity is more important than where you are. So it's not where you are, it's the progress you've made. And this is actually common with most VCs. This is not unusual to me. The knitting piece is a bit me, but it's very much a, it doesn't matter, like the level of progress I expect. I don't really care whether somebody had the most privileged education in the world or the least. I care about what they've been able to do with what they have and the, how far they've come. And the people, when we look for early signs of achievement, like the lazy way is, oh yes, but they did really well at university and then they worked at McKinsey. Um, <laughs> let's be absolutely clear. McKinsey does one thing very well, management consulting. Is management consulting the same as entrepreneurship? No, it couldn't be more different. Um, one actually involves doing something, the other involves writing PowerPoints. Um, and it's just like, it's, it's, it's like, it's what I, so this is the thing is you care about progress people have made. And that is one of the things, that's one of the other things. The last thing I look for, and it sounds really weird, is just like an emotional feeling, like full disclosure, I am a giant emotionally feeling sensitive human. Uh, I remember when I lived in New York, uh, women would reject me and like, oh, you're such a beta male. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, how am I a beta male? I'm literally at the top of pretty much everything. Okay, fine. I, I think I've outperformed pretty well. But what, this is what's really interesting. It's like those, so being clear, like very aggressive types, gender irrespective, generally don't get on my program because they lack that, that ability to be hugely empathetic. And for me personally, A, I don't really want to work around a bunch of people who aren't overly empathetic because they don't understand the customers and they won't get me and it just makes them a horrible environment. So in your new cohort, have you got, like, is it is it pretty gender balanced in terms of backgrounds of people, either sort of ethnicities or or family backgrounds? Or what You've got a new cohort starting this week or the week we do. after? Yes, yes. It's so... If I remember correctly, we sadly just missed, missed gender parity by one company, but that wasn't a target. I want to be clear. Like, it would be a nice to have, but because we index on empathy and feeling and your ability to empathy and resonate with your customer, because that's what I genuinely believe long-term gets you there, right? So genuine understanding and empathy with what your customers actually want and you build a team around that, that is what gets startup through the early doors and days and actually builds that loyal following which you need. Because let's be honest, as a startup, your early stage products are a bit mediocre. Come on, you've got a tiny dev team. You're probably going up against companies or a tiny team building the product. You're going up against, you know, large giants. Of course, it's going to be not so great. But that love, that solving that pain point is what drives through. So this is why I'm obsessed with empathy on that piece. Um, and so the other thing about this, this founding set, I think is really exciting is they're all, I mean, the backgrounds wise, we've got people from, What's really uh, from all over the world coming through, but very, we unusually have uh, American companies coming to our program. And we're very, we're very happy to have some Ukrainian companies having come through the program. The two very different stories there. You know, one is, uh, you know, I believe as the venture capital world, I wish there's more we could do 
to help what's going on for the Ukrainian people. Um, I'm so proud of one of the companies in our last batch, uh, Legal Nodes. They are operating. They're still operating. They're, half their team is in Ukraine. Half of them can't leave. But they're still there. They're operating despite living in a war zone. And it's that tenacity and fight. If they can do that, imagine you just have to think how far they, they're going to go. Anyway, I digress. I get really excited, but I'm <laughs> so proud of those people. It's just like, I don't know what I would do if I was living in a war zone. Anyway, and the American team is just really interesting. And this comes to like, you know, they are like, you know, one of the great new things is that we get to sponsor visas nowadays. So post-Brexit, um, we are now able to issue visas using the innovation startup route, which is great because I can now look for talent from anywhere in the world that wants to make the UK their home. They want to build here. They want to build their companies here. Uh, their own countries aren't as good a place for them to do so. And all I do is send a letter to the home office and the visa gets approved very quickly. And for me, as the son of someone who comes from a former colonialized country, I fucking love it. Because <laughs> it's like talent is coming first. It doesn't matter where you were born. You didn't have to be born in the EU to be allowed to just walk, come into the UK. And, you, uh, and if you weren't, you had to go through this horrible scrap for visas. Now, yeah, it's probably harder to get in. But if you're bright, you're talented. But if we think you're good, you probably are quite good. So that's the thing that really, really excites me. Like with this next batch, we get to make sure we get to bring amazing talent, irrespective of where it was born, and bring it into the UK to help help our economy thrive. Final question. To build Ooh. on what you would, yeah, final question. I'm going to end <laughs> where we usually start with founders. Oh, okay. Which is that, yeah, which is actually, how did you end up where you are? What's your story? How did you end up in the world of startups and scale-ups, given all of those things that you just started to touch on about background and all of those things? How, how have you ended up where you are? What's your founding story? Oh, you're going to laugh on it, Dolly. So <laughs> this is really embarrassing. So um, I was a bit of a, as a, as a kid, my dad was like, you need to go and understand how, to, how work, the world of work works, you know? Like, so I had a Saturday job and it was back in the days in a little computer shop where they made computers. Back in the days, you'd assemble the components. I realized any, any of the Gen Z audience, this is like, what? What do you mean you'd assemble? How do you assemble a laptop? But, uh, we didn't have laptops back then. No. Um, we definitely didn't. Um, and so, and there was, the founder was just like this really awesome guy, the guy who ran the company, really awesome guy. And he was like, yeah, why not come do this? This is great, you know? And he had a copy of a magazine called Red Herring, which is for the older listeners of this, or this podcast. <laughs> um, we'll remember was the Chronicle of, of Silicon Valley back mm. in the original dot-com boom. And they talked about this magical world where there were these founders who were building companies. There were these people called venture capitalists who were building them. And there were these cool people called management consultants who were enabling <laughs> them. And I was like, this seems way more fun than being a doctor. I mean, look, I'm brown. There was only one career <laughs> I was supposed to have, right? And that was, Salem, you will be a doctor one day and you will make us proud. That's basically how my mother would tell me. <laughs> um, and so I then ended up going, I was like, this sounds way more interesting. And so, but then, you know, I was like, right, how do, how do I get, that sounds like way more, how do I do it? Right. They all went to pretentious university. Oh, I don't really want to go to university. Okay, fine. Um, and so, yeah, I just like, that's that's basically what set the track. Then did did the consulting bit, then did the startup bit, and then I guess I'm one of the lucky ones, right? The startup stuff worked, mm -hmm. um, and then you know 
after a couple of startups, a couple of acquisitions, and you know, a couple of hundred million in value created, I went to the guy who backed my last startup and I was like, can I be a venture capitalist now, please, <laughs> please? And he was like, go on then. Just see if you can work with our companies first. And I think what's really interesting about my, my story is that I'm not, I don't consider myself a real venture capitalist. I consider myself like somebody who's like a startup growth person. I consider myself like as much of an educator as an investor. Like my job is uh, while I make the investments, I also teach every person that comes to the Textiles London program spends at least an hour to two hours a week with me. And they also spend another maybe anywhere between five to 10 hours a week on one-on-one time with the Textiles team and our mentors. Nobody else in the business does this. And the reason I bring that up is this is why Techstar, this is why I do, why I love, do what I love, this. I love spending time enabling others to do things that I found difficult. You know, I remember being, having all the checkboxes and having lots of London VCs just refuse to take my email. What do you mean? I'm Oxbridge. I worked at BCG. I was part of a startup that exited to Cisco. What the fuck? You don't you want to take my call? And this one guy from a notable UK VC fund actually fell asleep in our meeting and didn't even apologize. And he only got the meeting because one of my friends from college who happened to be an old Etonian was able to, to was, able, was um, able to send a good word in, even though he had no connection or understanding of technology or finance whatsoever. And so how did I get, so this is one of the things like, you know, sorry, I'm ranting. This isn't the direct <laughs> answer to your question. But, um, Much more very, interesting than the question I asked. <laughs> this is a good rant. This is a good rant. But it's, it's interesting when you talk about with such passion about being a teacher and about enabling others and leveling up and access and accessibility and, you know, all the things actually that matter so much to Sarah and I. And when we work with companies, they're such a big part of, of what we do. Salim, you have been amazing. We could stay and rant and listen to you and put the worlds to rights. But I feel like... Um, you are doing that. We, we can't wait to see the, the cohort that comes through, what they end up doing. Um, and we can't wait to see what Techstars, the next chapter for Techstars. So listen, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, I should say, Diochen uh, Bauer for your time today. There you go. Oh, Diochen. <laughs> well, just half, just half. Yeah. <laughs> the good half, right? The good half. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. As Amelia said, can't wait to see what comes next. A lot to talk through there, Sarah. That was a good one. (laughs) Yes, lots to talk about. So I think that when I went back through the notes that we took together, I was really interested by, I'm calling it, the ecosystem of entrepreneurialism. I thought I wasn't going to be able to say that, but I managed to say it. I managed to say it. Thank God for coffee. Well done. So it struck me, it made me laugh, actually, how the situation in terms of kind of entrepreneurialism as a as more than just a lifestyle choice but being a kind of uh you know the thing that people want to he was talking about the management consultancies droves of people you know wanting to leave to start up their own business whereas actually kind of you know 25 years ago or so when he was starting people couldn't understand why he would want to leave the security of a big management consultancy and I think it's right I mean it's funny I know you know later on 
he talks about Dragon's Den and says that that's not reality. But, you know, I do think that the programs like Dragon's Den have opened people up to to this notion of of, of entrepreneurialism and doing it for yourself and building a business. And, you know, I, I you know, definitely not, you know, it's not always, you know, it's not the real world. It's not how business always works, but it definitely has opened people's eyes and kind of made it um, a choice for, for more people, I think. Yeah, definitely. I think the when he talked about the social validator of actually the construct of, of you know, what an accelerator kind of is or can do or or any of those kind of points. Like I think the almost, the Dragon's Den example does the same thing of just like placing culture, the kind of common, where people would know the language of startup. I mean, we talked a little bit about some of the sort of death by an acronym that kind of is, is almost deliberately confusing in the space, but definitely that point on quite a common thing to do not a confusing life choice or choice to kind of do you know choice to kind of do in terms of work now there's definitely that common ground people would know even the two words startup not necessarily what that meant and I think there was some interesting conversations about that that I know you kind of found interesting but yeah definitely the sort of the social validation of it being a valid choice yes it was yeah and I I hadn't fully clocked and this is my bad but um I hadn't fully clocked that accelerators, the the capital access wasn't part of it. Um, that he was talking more about the the community and 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 knowledge. I'd assumed that actually accelerators provided access to capital too. So that that was that was interesting some do. for me. Some do, okay, but yeah, I think yeah, he was sort of more talking about. I guess if you take it even a step back from this conversation, what we're essentially saying here is if you create. You create a group dynamic. So if something's scary and isolating on your own, you know, you want to do something, but you, you maybe don't even know the language of what it is that you want to do. An accelerator can give you shared resources. It can give you a place to kind of focus your attention and your energy. And a community, at, and a yeah, community and a, yeah. which you kept on talking about. Yeah, the community dynamic and what that means from a network perspective, particularly when you talk about, like leveling the playing field in terms of access where you don't have that network yourself. I think one of the most powerful things that I've definitely observed from doing a few of those sessions or kind of being in an accelerator is the, is the almost like the speed mentoring, the access that it will give you to experts in different fields where people will literally just come in and say, yep, that's great. Pitch me your idea. Great. I'm going to make three introductions for you just now. I'm going to set you up with this person. Some of those, those network effects of being in an accelerator. I think there's the, there's the connection and support side of community, but there's also the fact that I guess to sort of extend the for a bit more, that like <laughs> it takes a village to make a startup a success, by and large. So you have to kind of get that get that connection. I thought that was interesting. Um, whereas you know what he was saying with it used to be kind of quite niche, and actually there wasn't that many people in that ecosystem or who wanted to engage with it because it was a bit risky. Now because of that validation piece, it's actually probably the opposite. People are kind of desperate to get in. Yeah, no, absolutely. But also when he was saying that, you know, specifically talking about Techstars, that one of their criteria is um, kind of emotional intelligence and empathy. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, they're specifically looking for, um, you know, early stage startups that that want to be part of the community and that want to, you know, reach out and, and this ability to kind of all, you know, all, all rise together, again, was something that that really struck me and I hadn't I hadn't fully 
I don't think I'd fully kind of clocked the the community aspect um, yeah. of being in an accelerator and the kind of the cohort and the you know the the, the group that that you're in rather than just the startup that you're that you're building. Those kind of comments also speak to different kinds of leadership. I mean, there's probably two sides to it. One is the kind of privilege side, and the other is the personality type. We take the personality type bit first. You know what he was saying around EQ, not just IQ, not just the person who can kind of come in and pitch best in the room. That when he talked about what they actually value and looking for people who want to kind of play and want to get the love from their customers, not who want to play to an investor audience. And that actually, previously, it would have been over-indexing on that kind of quite alpha personality who could come in and kind of do the big pitch, had the slick deck, told investors everything that they wanted to hear. I thought it was quite interesting that what he was actively looking for was somebody who just really, really loved their customers, wanting to build, you know, that kind of, that customer love and then flipping that so that that was the bit that you could leverage with investors because you would then be at the point where VCs and the wider kind of community couldn't ignore you. That's a different leadership kind of narrative than the one that I think we have been, if you were a founder, you were either, you know, a Zuckerberg type or a Musk type. Um, great. Ne- great role yeah, ne- yeah, great role d- models. Who have both done incredibly well, but are very white male they're not, it doesn't kind of speak to the rich kind of tapestry of all of the different founders that you can have. And I found that interesting about the, yeah, the the different kinds of leaderships that, leadership styles that were being valued. I think you'll naturally get more diversity in the ecosystem by pushing that leadership style dynamic as well. I would agree. I would agree. I, um, I did like his analogy about knitters and wool as well yes. I think that's one that I'll definitely be stealing I'll attribute it back obviously Celine but um the idea that um it's the sort of it's the person it's that sort of the, the 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 raw ability not ability and talent but it's kind of that raw the raw sort of personal qualities as opposed to when I mean, you talked a lot about you know trying to move away from you know what school did you go to did you start at McKinsey where you know all those other sort of the the markers of you know privilege and family and you know the luck of of of, uh, of where you were born um and 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 you can see it um it feels very personal when he talks yeah I think the the when he was talking about the knitting it was more important the will I will also be stealing it on a regular <laughs> basis um she says typing the powerpoint slide ready for that's the next right, step that's she right. has to present there <laughs> um with full credit of course um but was also around the team dynamics so Yes, some of those factors, and I think, you know, we'll come back to that kind of access point, I'm sure, in this discussion. But actually, the one of the success factors that he noted was around that, like the muscle memory of decision making. And that actually, it's the team dynamics bit that's just as important for success. So if you're playing the game as five individuals, to use, I think he used the number five, versus a five strong team, all doing different things, playing to your skill sets, but operating as a team, that that sense of how you have knitted (laughs) different bits of wool together was also really interesting because I I think we we probably don't talk about the importance of team enough I think particularly in startup narrative we talk about founders and leaders we don't necessarily talk about team dynamics enough and I 
particularly kind of yes, that, that's just an that resonated one. You're right. It's, it's very much the kind of cult of the individual, the kind yeah. of lone genius. The, yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's a good, a good point. Yeah. I, the the other thing I think as well that struck me when he talked was um, to your point about decision making. It was the yeah. decision making at speed. So he gave the example of of Amazon being able to just to make difficult decisions very quickly. And what's what's the process for decision making? That was something that that really struck me, which is, you know, what, what's the methodology? What's the process for decision making? And again, it, you know, that hadn't been something that that I'd considered before. But, you know, especially when you are in that early stage, you're you're making a ton of quick decision. You know, you, well, you're making a ton of decisions that you just need to make quickly, make them learn and move on. And actually, you know, you don't have the ability to spend half a day, you know, debating and pontificating. You just have to get on with it. Yeah, I think that was the um, when he was talking about momentum as well. That whole kind of like velocity is more important than where you are. Yes, and how you set yourself up for momentum by establishing those kind of decision making frameworks. Yeah, I found that really interesting. I think also probably then going back to the um, the other side of knitting being more important than the wool. Um, arguably, the um, the access point. I thought what was interesting about when he shared was also your not just and not to downplay, but access to network, you know, whether you've been blessed with being able to see entrepreneurship in action in your life at all, but also the access to failure that actually not everyone has permission or the ability to be able to fail yeah, and no, how he was looking right. at resetting that. I found that whole piece about that whole framing of access through his own, as you said, like deeply personal kind of story and narrative through it. Yeah, I, fa- I found that really interesting. It struck me when he said, and he was describing himself and his role at Techstars, and his quote was that he thought of himself as a public servant mm. um, and that he had a sort of a role, a mission to, you know, widen access and to enable you know, light to shine on talent in places where it hadn't been before. And the the public servant quote really struck me that I, that I wonder whether you'd hear that from other people in accelerators or VCs, you know, that it just, it, I just thought it was a really interesting and quite an unusual phrase. And I can totally see where he's coming from, but I actually, the more I thought about it, the more unusual I think it probably is. Yeah, I think it's just that innate sense of responsibility that he obviously has in terms of like what comes next and what we sort of all do. I, yeah, I, I agree. It's definitely a different framing on what that needs to look like, which I think also must sort of reset the tone of what success looks like. And there's obviously, you know, success looks like having customers and <laughs> and grow like in, in a very basic sort of level. But I think almost by embodying that kind of leadership narrative, I think the two things are probably, or maybe more interlinked no, than he probably right. realises. I think yeah. you're right. I think the embodiment of the leadership narrative is a good thought, maybe a good place for us to uh, to wrap and finish up this conversation. Indeed. Brilliant. Thank you, Sarah, as always. And thank you, Celine. Thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to Strat Hack with me, Sarah Holland. And me, Amelia Turode. To find out more about the work we've been doing at Formbreak, visit weareformbreak.com. For more information on what we do at Ketchum, visit ketchum.com forward slash London. For more details on today's guest, everything we've discussed, and how to get in touch with us about this podcast, 
please check out the notes that accompany this episode. And of course, don't forget to rate, share and subscribe via your podcast platform of choice. We'll see you next time on Strat Hat.